Well, we're looking at the book of Matthew. We're up to, uh, we've been through chapter 3. And immediately following his immersion in the book of Matthew, he is tempted. There's the temptation of Yeshua. He's filled with the Spirit of God. It rests upon him as a dove. And then Yeshua goes to the wilderness and he's there for 40 days. And you can't help but draw the parallel to Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. Yeshua is tempted by the adversary of God. And what does he do to overcome the adversary of God? Well, he quotes Torah. He quotes the laws of Torah to defeat the adversary. And that's kind of amazing to me when you consider that the church has basically ignored the Torah, the law of God. And yet it's what Yeshua uses to defeat the adversary. The fact is, you know, the law, the Torah, was the very first thing that was stripped from the early Roman church. And there's a reason. If the adversary can take the word of God from you, it leaves you with no real footing to stand on. If Yeshua is the Son of God and he needed Torah to overcome this life, how much more do we need it? But the fact is, it was the very first thing that the adversary stripped from the church. He did it a couple of ways. We're we're talking about it tonight in the series on Life of Messiah. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, Then Yeshua was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Now, the translators of Matthew use the word diablos here for adversary. And the Greek word, I put it up here, means a traducer, a specifically Satan, a false accuser, slanderer. The adversary attacks with his tongue in the form of lies and slander. It's the way he deceived Adam and Chava in the garden. It's the way he defeats most people. It's why he hates the word of God. It makes it harder, the word of God makes it harder for him to deceive you, to lie to you. When he says that he's a slanderer, it's why the rabbi speaks so much about evil tongue, evil speech. We've taught on it before, so we're not going to get into it today. But I should tell you something. If you're speaking ill of someone, whether it's true or whether it isn't, if you're just speaking ill of someone, you're not doing the Lord's work. Who are you really being led by? Are you being led by the Spirit of God or are you being led by another spirit? Let me just say that the spiritual man is the one who guards his tongue. Matthew tells us that Yeshua was led into the wilderness to be tempted, and yet James tells us this about temptation. In James 1, verse 13, he says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot tempt, be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And so James tells us flat out that God doesn't tempt us, and yet it says that Yeshua was led into the wilderness to be tempted. He may test us, as he did with Abraham in the binding of Isaac, but he doesn't tempt us. And yet the verse says clearly that Yeshua went into the wilderness to be tempted. On the other hand, we see that he's not tempted by the Lord, but he's really tempted by the adversary. He's, he's tempted with him with various things we're going to talk about. So I guess we learn by this that God doesn't tempt us, but he does know that we will be tempted. He allows us to be tempted. Think about it. We're tempted each and every day by the things of this age. 
But even though we're tempted by those things, it's really from our hearts that we respond to those things. And that's why James says we're tempted by our own evil desires. We're dragged away by that desire. I love that. You're just carried along by it. It's much the same thing we see here. Satan, the ruler of the present evil age, will tempt Yeshua with things that, because of his flesh and desires, would cause him to be dragged away. And Yeshua responds with three verses from the book of Deuteronomy. You see, the adversary's task, his mission and reason for existence is to tempt you to violate Torah, to lie to you, to get you to violate Torah. And the reason is simple. John tells us that transgression of the law is sin. If the adversary can tempt you, if he can lie to you and get you to transgress Torah, then there's one day that's coming that he can accuse you. It's your mission as disciples of Yeshua to know the commands of God well enough to keep your feet from transgressing Torah. And Messiah, having been tempted in all ways, helps us overcome. He gives us strength to do that. Listen to what John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. He says, Everyone who sins breaks the Torah, the law. In fact, sin is Torahlessness, lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our transgressions, our sins, and in him is no sin, and no one in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. So if you transgress Torah knowingly, John would say to you, you've never seen him or known him. So that's just a simple lesson on sin, but that's not what we're really here to do today. The adversary of God is trying to keep Yeshua from fulfilling the call of God on his life. He wants to keep him from fulfilling the call that God has placed him on his life. And Satan knows that this is the Messiah, and so we're going to see in these temptations things that we could say would be proofs of his Messiahship. When in fact, in each of these temptations, it's possible for Yeshua to be dragged away and be kept from his goal. These temptations, in other words, would seem to be shortcuts to what God would have Messiah do. He's offering him shortcuts to the rule over the earth. Problem is, there's no shortcuts with God. There's only one way with God, and that's to trust him. Sometimes that trust takes a long time. Now I mentioned that, you know, Abraham, he was tested by God. And I want to read an ancient Midrash on his testing. And we're going to see that he was also, they saw this in traditions that he was tested by the adversary of God. And the reason I want to read this is because his answer to the adversary is very much the same as Yeshua's. And in this ancient Midrash, the adversary, the devil is trying to keep Abraham from going to the mountain to offer his son Isaac, from fulfilling this call that God has placed on him. And and Abraham's response is very much the same as Yeshua's. Listen to what it says. Satan transformed himself into a large brook of water in the road. And when Abraham and Isaac and the two young men reached that place, they saw a brook large and powerful as the mighty waters. And they entered the brook and tried to pass it. 
But the further they went, the deeper the brook. So that the water reached up to their necks and they were terrified on account of the water. But Abraham recognized this place. He knew that there had been no water there before and he said to his son, I know this place on which there is no brook, no water. Now surely it is Satan who doth all this to us to draw us aside this day from the commands of God. And Abraham rebuked Satan saying unto him, Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, be gone from us. For we go by the command of God. And Satan was terrified at the voice of Abraham and he went away from him and the place became dry land as it was at first. And Abraham went with Isaac toward the place that God told him about. Now I wanted to read that because listen to what Abraham says. He says, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Be gone from us. For we go by the command of God. And Yeshua says in response to the adversary, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the... Lord your God, and serve him only. We also learn from both of these stories two things. The adversary of God will use the things in this world to keep you from fulfilling the call of God on your life. In this story, and is always the case, he uses things that aren't even real. They're not even lasting. Sure, he offers Yeshua the rule over the world, but how long will that last? He also uses the fears of this life to keep us from the goal. Let's look at Yeshua's temptation, and we should keep in mind that this temptation will seem greater than any we're ever going to endure. But you have to understand the adversary knows how to test us all perfectly. He knows our weaknesses. He knows when to test us and how to test us. Matthew 4, verse 1 says, And Yeshua was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Yeshua answered, It is written, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The adversary, he waits till Yeshua's at his weakest point in this journey into the wilderness after 40 days of fasting and he's hungry and he tempts him with bread. Because of hunger, yes, but something else. He uses bread here in the first temptation and we could see why Yeshua, how Yeshua would be tempted by this. After 40 days of fasting, yeah, he'd be hungry. But remember, Yeshua also knows he's the prophet like unto Moses. And so he uses bread here. Listen to the, one of the traditions on this about the Messiah. As the first redeemer was, so shall the latter redeemer be. Just as the first redeemer caused manna to come down, as it is written, behold, I will rain down bread from heaven for you so too will the latter redeemer cause manna to come down. That is stated, may he be as rich cornfield in the land. And so Yeshua being the prophet like Moses, a miracle like changing bread, bringing bread from a rock, would be proof of that. And so he might be tempted by that. There's another messianic figure, one that we're looking at in our Torah portions, who is very interesting in the regard of bread. He's also considered a messianic figure, Joseph. In fact, there's even a tradition that says one of the messiahs will be a suffering servant messiah, Messiah ben Joseph. And Joseph is credited with saving Israel with bread. And in fact, many believe the name Pharaoh gave him, Zephaneth Paneah, means bread man of life.
And so in the story, we're immediately taken back by this, and we're also taken by this number 40 and the way it's used in stories in the Bible. It would automatically take us to Noah in the flood in 40 days of rain. But even more important are these allusions to Moses and the children of Israel. Moses' life is divided into a series of 40. When he was 40, he fled Egypt. When he was 80, he delivered Israel. And when he was 120, he was led up on the mountain and gathered to his fathers. When the children of Israel were tested and tempted, they failed. And for that, they had to spend 40 years in the wilderness. And so God wants to draw our attention to Moses and to Noah in this narrative. To Moses because Yeshua is that prophet like unto Moses. And what I believe also to be true here, I believe that this temptation is happening during the fall of the year, during the season of Teshuvah. Repentance. We see John immersing, immersing for repentance, and the rabbis teach that the beginning of Elul, Elul 1, and then ending on Yom Kippur, which is a total of 40 days, those are 40 days of self-examination, of repentance, leading up to two days of judgment. The first being Rosh Hashanah at the head of the year and the second being Yom Kippur, which ends in a fast. And that day, Israel deals with their sins by sending a goat into the wilderness. Also, the adversary of God is, is, uh, adversaries of God are symbolically brought to their fate. Each year, here at Sar Shalom, as close to Elul 1 as we can get, we have our summer picnic and our immersion service so that we'll be ready for those fall festivals and we can immerse ourselves what we feel is the same time Yeshua immersed himself. But we see John immersing for repentance in the Jordan and Yeshua going to John for immersion and then immediately going into the wilderness, culminating on this final day of Yom Kippur with hunger and with dealing with the adversary, just as done is, is done on Yom Kippur. I don't know anybody who on the, at the end of Yom Kippur isn't hungry. So perhaps we see the adversary not only tempting Yeshua through hunger, but also in a quick way, trying to give him a shortcut of showing the people that he's the Messiah that they've long waited for. We all know that Yeshua later will bring bread forth in a miraculous way, later in his ministry, but he overcomes this temptation here by quoting Deuteronomy. And then in verse 5 it says, The devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that your foot will not strike against a stone. And Yeshua answered, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And so the adversary of God knows more about the Messiah than most people know about the Messiah. He says, if you are the Son of God. And then he quotes Psalm 91. And if we look at that Psalm, we're going to find a little bit more about this. If we go to Psalm 91 and verse 14, it says, because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him, I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. And he will call upon me and I will answer him. And I will be with him in trouble and I will deliver him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. And so what we see the adversary again doing here is trying to get Yeshua to establish his own Messiahship through his own effort instead of trusting that God has a plan to accomplish this and that God will 
fulfill the plan that he has for him. One of the things we know about the Messiah and the thing we look most forward to is his return. Anybody not looking forward to his return? So we're all looking forward to his return. Over and over the prophets tell us that Messiah is going to return and rule over the earth. He's going to have a kingdom here. And it's not going to be like this kingdom, but it'll be one that will be ruled according to the laws of God, the kindness and the mercy of God. But we also know from Scripture that before that could happen, first Messiah had to come and suffer. And I'm sure that by this time in Messiah's life, he's well aware of what lies ahead for him. And so with the final temptation, the adversary offers Yeshua a shortcut to ruling the earth. Verse 8 says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I'll give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Yeshua said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him, and angels came to attend him. Now we know that this probably isn't a true mountain that he took him to, but it's metaphorical. There's no mountain high enough to see all the kingdoms of the world. But... Things are often spoken of in symbols. So the adversary showed him a pinnacle and mountains in, in the prophets are often referred to as kingdom. And so the adversary showed him, took him to this pinnacle and showed him the rule of the earth. And in this amazing temptation, Yeshua is given the opportunity to rule the world without having to suffer on the stake or wait another 2,000 years for that to come to be. If he'll just pay him homage, if he'll just bow to the adversary. Yeshua, of course, says no. And he rebukes him, again, with the book of Deuteronomy. We're all tempted in that way, all the time. We're offered the things of this world instead of the things of God. But I can't help but wonder where Yeshua would have been on this day that he was tempted had not Joseph and Mary taught him Torah, the law of God? If Joseph and Mary had not taught him Torah, if they had said, oh, you don't need that. If, he hadn't, if they hadn't made it the focus of their lives. What if Yeshua had learned no Torah? He didn't know the book of Deuteronomy. As many in the church don't know the book of Deuteronomy. Yeshua did not know Torah by osmosis. A lot of people think Yeshua knew it by osmosis. He didn't know it by osmosis. He was taught just like any other man. Just like when he came into the world, he pooped his pants just like any other baby. He had to learn Torah just like any other man. We're told of a person who's going to come who will be the lawless one. Listen to this. Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 says, For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do, to do so until he's taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Yeshua will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the splendor of his coming. And the coming of the lawless one will be done in accordance with the work of Satan, displaying all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. 
They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that they will be condemned and not who have not believed in the truth and have delighted in wickedness. So we're told here, and the reason I bring this up is we're told that the world is going to be deceived. They're going to be fooled by one who's called the lawless one, or we could say the Torahless one. They'll be fooled because they'll too be Torahless. And so because they're Torahless, they don't know the book of Deuteronomy. They don't know the book of Genesis. They won't recognize the evil one. We're looking at the early believers in our five o'clock Havdalah services and we're studying what happened to those early congregations after the disciples had perished. After those initial disciples left around the year 100, the last of them vanishes. What happened? Right away, they're on their own, very early in the movement, in its infancy, in just after the first century, just after the forerunners are gone. They're without guidance. And the very first thing that happens is they're stripped of the Torah of God. They're stripped by being told that it's no more, you don't need that. But they're also stripped in another way. They're stripped by bad interpretation. And the reason is simple. Without Torah, you don't recognize sin. And you won't recognize the Torahless one either. I think that it's important for us to see that these temptations, that while they're greater than anything that will be thrown at us, that Yeshua did not handle this in a miraculous way, but dealt with each of those temptations the way each of us must deal with those temptations in life. When we're tempted, we have to be able to refer to the Word of God. The key is easy. Keep the word, the law of God close to your heart and don't buy into the teaching that the Torah is no longer useful because the Torah is a guide for our lives. The Torah tells us where our behavior is no longer acceptable to God. And so this is where the adversary, the accuser of the brother would like you to fail. He'd like your way of walking through life not to be acceptable to God. He's the Torahless one. That's how you're going to recognize him. But you first have to know Torah. Listen to what Paul says in, first, in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know, we read that and we don't realize what he meant by scripture. But I can tell you this, Paul died before any of the Gospels were written. When he says Scripture, when he says written word, he's talking about the Torah and the prophets. Understand that the Torah is not the model for your life. Yeshua is the model for your behavior. You're to be following in the footsteps of Yeshua. We should endeavor to live lives like he did because his life rose above the minimum standard that's in the Torah. But the Torah should be our final guardrail, so to speak, to keep us from crossing over into behavior that's offensive to God. And that is how Yeshua used the Torah. And it's how we should use the Torah as well. Finally, what happens in the wilderness is that Yeshua is ministered to by angels. 
They were sent to, to watch over him, to guard over him, to minister over him. And let me tell you something. If you trust the Lord, he'll send angels to watch over you too. The next thing that Yeshua does is, he, is, is leave the wilderness and begin to preach. And so there's something we should learn from all of this. And we need to get back to the last week for a bit for, uh, to completely understand it. We need to learn that before Yeshua entered into his ministry, before he sought uh, to do the things that he was called to do, he first received the leading of the Spirit of God. He needed to be empowered by the Spirit of God to accomplish what God had given him to do. Not just that, he was tempted to take the easy way into ministry, which would really have been no ministry at all. He had to have the Spirit of God. Before the disciples began their ministry, what did Yeshua tell them to do? Wait until you receive power. God is teaching us that you will never accomplish anything for God or in ministry without the leading of his spirit. The Torah, if lived out by the spirit of God, will lead you into a halakha of loving God and loving your neighbor. A way of walking that resembles Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But the Torah of God that lived out in the flesh will lead you to a list of rules. Instead of loving your neighbor, you'll judge him with the club of Torah. Listen to what verse 12 says. When Yeshua heard that John had been put into prison, he returned to the Galilee, leaving Nazareth, and he went to live in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and Naphtali, by the way of the sea, along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land. Of the shadow of death, light has dawned. So I, I told you when we started this that we need to be aware as we go through the book of Matthew for this constant hints that the good news was about to go out to the Gentile. That God's plan included much more than just the redemption of Israel and the people of Israel. But that he was, had a concern for the nations of the earth as well. And we see this in Yeshua's ministry. You know, while he himself doesn't go to the nations, he doesn't really leave the Holy Land, he hints here that the good news will by ministering near the Galilee. Listen to what the Galilee said, what the meaning of the word Galil, Galilee. Circuit or district, Naphtali, largely occupied by heathens. Amazing that while Yeshua himself didn't go to the nations, he ministered primarily in an area that's noted for its occupation by heathens. Towns, Caesarea. Towns where the heathens, the Romans, built and lived. Not only that, the first disciples that he calls are fishermen from that very area. Listen to what it says. and Listen to this very first disciple that he calls. Matthew 4, verse 18. As Yeshua was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting their net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And so Peter is the first disciple he calls. And what was Peter's mission? Where was he sent? To the Gentiles. 
Yeshua, by this time in his ministry, knows that even though he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, he also has some sheep of another pen. And I think that he alludes to this, and so does Matthew. Matthew, in his writing of this gospel, sees that this is what has happened. As I said, this gospel isn't written until after Paul's dead. We're talking about 40, 30, 40 years after Yeshua's gone, and he sees all these Gentiles coming to the Lord. All throughout the world, the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles. It was one of the things that Messiah was expected to do, to be a light to the nations. And as we see the writings of Paul, there's a disturbance over this good news going out. It disturbed a lot of Jewish people because they weren't expecting what was required of non-Jews in the past. And so he... Matthew wants to make it clear to his Jewish audience that it has always been God's intention and Messiah Yeshua's intention that those from the nations be brought into the faith in faith in Messiah, that they be grafted in. That Messiah loves those from the nations just as he loves his brothers, the Jewish people. And that's why he says of the centurion, he says, many will come on that day from the east and from the west. And Peter will be one who's sent to uh, the nations and he'll be the one to first realize this when he goes to the house of Cornelius, the uncircumcised Gentile, and the Spirit of God is poured out on him. And so the message is not just to the Jew, but it's also to the Gentile. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So let's bring the worship team back up. <clears throat> 